This is KMTT. Today, on Mondays, we have a shear of Harav Binyamin Tavori, who this year will be examining different responses, Shalotu Tshuvot, from the major ones from the 18th and 19th century. Harav Tavori. This year, we have been discussing Tshuvos of the 18th and 19th century. In some cases, we've dealt with fathers and sons, grandchildren. We've already discussed the Tshuvos of Rebbe Kiva Eger, who was the father-in-law of the Chassam Sofer, and we discussed the Tshuvos of the Ksav Sofer, the son of the Chassam Sofer. Today, I'd like to discuss the Tshuvos of Reb Shlomo Eger, the son of Reb Kiva Eger, the father and the brother-in-law of the Chassam Sofer, and the uncle of the Ksav Sofer. Reb Shlomo Eger was born in Lisa in 1786. As a youth, he learned with his father, as we'll always say about these gedolim that they were known as child prodigies. He was married quite young. At the age of 16, he married the daughter of a wealthy, of a wealthy family. Reb Shlomo Sofer continued learning, but went also into the world of business. He continued saying shiurim and had talmidim, but was not a rav in any official position. In fact, the students used to marvel how Reb Shlomo Eger could move from one world to the other and seemingly not lose his concentration and dedication to the shiurim that he gave regularly. In 1861, when 1831, when Reb Shlomo Eger was 47 years old, because of political unrest in Europe, Reb Shlomo Eger lost his entire fortune. And he then had to look for a position to support himself and his family. In 1865, he became a Rav in the city of Kalish. At that time, there was the famous controversy that we have discussed already in the time we dis- learned about Rabbi Kiva Eger, the controversy that existed between the printers of Slavita and the printers of Vilna about the rights to the Shas. At that time, the printers who lost accused Rabbi Kiva Eger of being swayed by his son, wrote nasty things both about Rabbi Kiva Eger and about his son. And that time, Rabbi Kiva Eger wrote a very forceful letter where he talked about Kavadah Torah in his generation, and he talked about the, particularly the Kavod of his son, who was already known as the great Tamid Chacham, and he defended him very, very vociferously. In 1838, Rabbi Kiva passed away. In 18... 
1835, he became the Rav of Kalish. In 1838, Rebbe Kibeger passed away. In 1839, after a, a lengthy debate with the community, they chose Rebbe Shlomo Eger to replace his father as the Rav of Pajna. There were some who opposed him, as there were some who opposed the appointment of Rev. Akiva Eger at his time, because they felt they were too kanoi, too outspoken in their beliefs. Of course, like his father, they were, Reb Shlom Eger was a very strong opponent, opponent of any reform, new movement in Judaism, as we have know from the Chassam Sofer, his brother-in-law, and throughout the family. Rav Shlomo Eger remained the Rav of Pajna for at least 12 years. At that time, besides being involved in Rabbanus, he was, he was a community leader. He supported an agricultural movement. He really recommended that the Jews at the time leave the world of business and enter the world of agriculture more. He also supported the community in Eretz Israel at that time. In the introduction to his chuvos, there is a story told how Reb Shlomo Eger was asked to just write a psak, not to write lengthy chuvos explaining the pros and cons, but to just give a psak. Reb Shlomo Eger's response, as quoted in the introduction to the chuvos, was that he refused to do such a thing. Because he said every question has its sides, and Reb Shlomo Eger can only tell people who were Tamir Chachamim, I'll present the sides, you have to think about it, we have to suggest. But he would not willing to accept an unconditional statement that this is the halacha without discussing it. Of course, this story reminds me of a story that's told about Reb Chaim Brisker, who wrote a letter to Reb Yitzhak and he asked Rabbi Yitzhak a question. And he enclosed money, as was the custom in those days, for Rabbi Yitzhak to pay the postage to return an answer. But he asked him to send a telegram. And he paid for the telegram. When the students asked, why need you send a telegram? It's a, uh, not such a burning issue that you need an immediate answer. So Chaim's answer was, I wanted an answer briefly, to the point, without any long discussion. And that's what you would do in a telegram. Because once you explain the various reasons, I know the various reasons, and I can't make up my mind. He'll write all the different sides, so I'll, won't know what to do. But if he tells me this is the halacha, then I rely on Rabbi Tzalchana, and I don't get involved in what the various issues are. Apparently, that would be the difference between a type of a Pesach or a Yitzel Hanan and Reb Shlomager. Reb Shlomager really did not want to give a definitive answer. He wrote a, both sides of the issue, explored all the angles. At the end, he might have given his recommendation, but he did not want to say absolutely a Psak. Whereas Reb Yitzel Hanan, who was the, considered one of the major Pesachim of his generation, Apparently, if the story is true and he sent back a telegram, he's willing to say this is halacha and without explaining it well. Rev. Shlomo Eger passed away on Yud Aleph Teves 
1852. He, his writings that existed through many years were Gilyonos Maharsha, Maharsha is Reb Shlomo Eger, not the Maharsha, that's the Chidushim in back of the Gemaris, but they're printed in many Gemaris and many in the Shulchan Aruch, Gilyon Maharsha, the Gilyon of Reb Shlomo Eger. We also know of the Lamdas of Reb Shlomo Eger, from the Chuvas of Rebbe Kiva where some of them were written by his son, some of them were written to his son, some of them were correspondents. So we know that Rebbe Shlomo Eger was a big Tamit Chacham. Interestingly enough, until recent years, the Chuvas were not printed at all. In fact, Mossad Rav Kook printed an edition of Chuvas of Rebbe Shlomo Eger that they printed in 1983. And they wrote in the Front, frontispiece that this is the first time these writings had, have seen print and of course they wrote an introduction with sources comments etc and a lot of the information that I mentioned today about Rabbi Shlomo Eger was taken from the introduction printed by Rav Meir Yoshua Katzelenbeugen of Mossad Rav Kook they also mentioned in that introduction that Reb Shlomo Eger wrote Svarim about principles of Shas. Yesodos, that he went, went through the Aleph base, which he called Sefer Ikarim. When Masad Rav Kook wrote their introduction, they mentioned that this Sefer is also not available. Of course, today, we do have two volumes that Masad Rav Kook published later of the Sefer Ikarim of Reb Shlomo Eger, so more uh, writings of Shlomo Eger have been discovered and printed by Mossad Rav Kook in these past few decades. Shlomo Eger was also famous for a, a very interesting, curious, curious point about his family. He was the father of, of Rebbe Label Eger, who became a great Hasidic student, follower, and then eventually a Hasidic Rebbe. In the, a family of Rebbe Kiv Eger, of Rebbe Shlomo Eger, Rebbe Hassam Salfer, classic Misnagdim, it was somewhat unusual to say the least that one of their family members became a Hasid. The writing about this uh, historical issue and the problems that were caused are well known in the Hasidic world, in the uh, histo- history of that time. Today I'd like to discuss a few of the chuvas that appeared in the first volume of Chuvas Reb Shlomo Eger, the volume of Chuvas of Arachayim and Yeradeya. I would like to point out that questions that seem not even such uh, famous burning issues throughout the centuries were dealt with from Shlomo Eger at length, very lengthy chuvos discussing the question from all angles, from all sides. I refer right now to the chuva of Arachayim Simon Gimo. And the question there was the community of Krachin wrote them a letter, wrote him a letter about saying Shir Hayichud in the shul, the big shul, they used to say the Shir HaYichud. 
then there was a fire and the shul was burnt. When the shul was rebuilt, two rabbanim, a Rav Mendelssohn and a Rav Goldschmidt, they wanted to discuss should you have the minig of saying Shira Yichud or should you not have saying the Shira Yichud? Now, let's remember that at one point they did. So my assumption is that the people that wrote, some were very much opposed to it for various reasons. They presented their arguments to Shlomo Eger and he dealt with the various arguments. One of them was that whenever we abolish former customs or change former customs, we always have a problem of being motzi laz on earlier generations. As if you're saying that the, energy, the earlier generations were incorrect in what they did, and you're, in a sense, insulting their reputation. Secondly, you're questioning the validity of things that they've done before. For example, in Gitten, we have this issue very much. The halacha is, in general, the Gemara says not to change from the earlier customs of Gitten, even to go to Chumrah, because then you're motzilaz on the earlier Gitten. There, of course, it's a question that you're going to say the early Gitten were not valid. It's not just you're impugning the integrity of the people that came before. You're questioning the validity of the get. That, Rabbi Shlomo said, is a valid point that one should think of. We should not assume that the earlier Gedolim were incorrect in their opinion. The person wrote that the person who questioned their opinion insulted them. So there, Rav Shlomo said, let's read the letter very carefully. They did not write negatively about the early generations. They just felt it would be more appropriate not to say Shira Hayichud. He also said that the person quoted many people as if he were showing off. So he said, I don't understand. You're allowed to quote the people, even if you think you know them. Well, what's wrong with quoting the people? And secondly, we all know that this is basically all based on to save the Siddur of Rabbi Yaakov Emden. There are various editions of the Siddur of Rabbi Yaakov Emden, and to make our life easier, the Rav Katzelenbeigen, who printed the Chuvos, has a footnote where he quotes the discussion of Rabbi Yaakov Emden. They quote there a Chuva of the Ramah, who brought a Chuva of the Mari Mintz, who said that he was very upset that certain people had pr- suggested changes in the Shira Yichut because of some old volume that they found that it implied that saying this Shira Yichud was actually a form of blasphemy. The Rabbi Yaakov Emdin suge- explained, according to Kabbalah, why you can adapt the shear without any changes. He quotes also the Levush, who cited the Marshal as changing the custom and saying 
not to say Shir for reasons that he did not want to specify. The Rabbi Yaakov Emden explained perhaps the reason was that they thought the uh, author of the Shir was not an appropriate person to sing his songs. The Levush said that it's the Shir is so beautiful, it's so much like Halal that you shouldn't say it every day. Like you don't say Halal every day. And the Maharal was quoted as saying, a person who prays HaKadosh Baruch Hu too much will be removed, taken out of the world. <coughs> Therefore, the Maharal says, it's usher to say this song that was written by Balabatim. Rabbi Yaakov Emdin praises the song and he explains why he felt it was permitted. But the whole discussion was an earlier discussion and the people just referring to the sources that were well known at the time. <coughs> they do not specify exactly what the Shira Yuchud is. Now we know a Shira that we sing Anim Zmiros after davening on Shabbos. We also say Shira Yichud the night of Yom Kippur. Perhaps they said Shira Yichud daily. That seems to be the gist of the argument. <coughs> They're referring to daily practice. I'm not exactly sure the text of the Shir Yichud they're discussing, Rav Shlomo Eger has a lengthy discussion where he discusses the strength of Minhagim in general. To cancel a minik is one thing. To institute new Minhagim is another. Many people have written, especially today, where the study of Minhagim has become a real subject in the world. For example, uh, Professor Danny Sperber wrote uh, all these volumes about Minhag Yisrael, um, the Minhag uh, Chachmei Ashkenaz, people have written about the Lubavitcher Minhagim, a German Minhagim, it's become a, a major topic today. Many people have discussed, including in Professor Sperber's book, the discussion of Achronim, why you have to keep Minhagim at all. What's the source that Minhagim become obligatory? And um, Rav Shlomo Eger discusses here, for example, that might be a dindaraisa. Maybe it's like a neder, where you would say bayachel. I said, if one wants to study this particular topic more carefully, you can find in uh, Rav uh, Sperber's book a whole discussion of achronim. How do you, what's the reason to keep minagim? Is it really because of a minig, which is like a dindaraisa, in, in which case, We'd have to discuss, are you allowed to abolish a minig? You'll have to have hataras nadarim. Is that like a neder al das rabim? Could you have charata? Could you go to a tamidei chachamim? Interestingly enough, the tshuva is very long, a number of pages discussing the issue. But at the end, I'd like to point out the resolution of the issue. He said, I think that you should not abolish earlier minhagim, but you should make sure this shir hayichud is said properly. And therefore, Rabbi Shlomo Eger suggested a takanon, as if rules of the Bet Knesset, how to sing the shir hayichud. Firstly, there should be, the shir hayichud should be said by the person who is in general the chazan of the shul. Now, we know that on certain days they appoint 
uh, a different Baltfila, either because he's a yard site, because he's uh, perhaps the Moel. Whatever the reason is, Shlomo Eger says, the Chazan should go back and he be the one to lead the Shira Yichud, to show the importance of Shira Yichud, to be, to be sure that it's said properly, with the proper, in the Hebrew words, benachat u'becheshkat levav. Not kinagain hamenagain, but with a special ni'imut arevut. I would say to make sure it's done very pleasantly, it's really not just like singing songs. And it should be done slowly, with great desire. He also said, you have to make sure that the people that answer the chazan say it also in the same style. And therefore, he suggested, you appoint a minion of people to stand next to the chazan when he says, Shir HaYichud, and they should answer the Shir HaYichud by listening carefully to the chazan, not beginning until the chazan ends his sentence, then saying his altogether. Rabbi Ketzelbeigen quoted a book named Psakim V'takanas Rebbe that was published in Yerushalayim in 1971 where they discussed, they've written actually these Takanas with minor changes in the name of the book of Tshuva's Takanas of Rebbe Kiva Eger. Uh, and it's important to note that they felt the Shatz Kavua, the regular Chazan, should be the one that says Anim Zmiros. I think it's interesting to contrast that to our custom today where we always let a child lead us in Shira Yichud to some tune that the child prefers. And some people do say, some people walk out, some people talk. I wonder what Reb Shlomager would say, referring to the Shira Yichud we say today, only on Shabbat. Of course, I think that the Tshuva was written about a Shira Yichud that was said daily, and one could obviously differentiate between the two. The next tshuva that I'd like to discuss today would be a tshuva about a community that has only one Kohen. And the Chazan is also a Kohen. The Chazan says that he could make sure that he could say Bechaz but afterwards he has no problem going back to his place, continuing Shemona Esrei, with the same Kavana, he will not lose track of what he, where he is and what he is by interrupting for Birchaz Karnim. Some people in the community had objected to the fact that the Chazan, who's supposed to stand as if he's standing Shemona Esrei, turns around and walks from his place, which is a hefsek. So that argument was quickly dispensed with by Abshlamoyger. He said, the Gemara says that if you're sure you can go back to your original Kavana, you're allowed to turn around in the middle of Shman Esrei to do Bechaz The people that said, well, they're obviously permitted if he says he can go back to his Kavana, he said, that's not so simple. Because let's analyze in what case did they say this. The case was in, in the Gemara, it said, Im ain't sham kohen elahu. He's the only Kohen in Shul. Now, if he's the only Kohen in Shul, then what are the alternatives? Either there'd be no Birchas Kohenim at all that day, or 
the coin would be allowed to turn around, say bechaskonim, go back. In such a case, it's considered a real shasatchak. We want to have the mitzvah bechaskonim. What would happen if there's one more kohen, but not the case that's in the Gemara? So he pointed out that if you'll study the language in in the different sources, uh, the in the Shulchan Aruch, for example, it says, achim lo kapav. It says koanim. In the Maram, it said in w- one koanim. And here you could discuss, is there a difference between five koanim and six koanim? Not necessarily. Is there a difference between one and two? Certainly could be. Because there are people who think, there are sources that think, that the mitzvah b'yechaz koanim is not a chi of daraisa. The chiv is only when there are two koanim, because it says amar lahem, plural. And if there's only one koan, maybe it's only a dindarabanan. So in that case, when there's one koan and the chazan, maybe that's also considered shasat chak. You could argue and discuss under which cases we would allow the koan, the koan who's the baltfila, to turn around. Maybe he's a tamit chacham. And the Kohen is not a Tamit Chacham. Would that also be sufficient reason? Would that also be Shasat Chak? So Rabbi Shlomo pointed out that for a few times this question had been raised. One time the, the question was when the Chazan was a Baal Ben Torah and the, uh, the other Kohen was not. And the Kohen said, the Baal for sure I can go back. So then I said he could do it. Another question came up to me when people said they were afraid of the Kohen being mafsik, of turning around. I said, no, that's not nothing at all. But you know what? Says Reb Shlomo at the end, I can make a case for both arguments. He should do Be'echaz Kohenim, he should not do Be'echaz Kohenim. Basically, there's nothing wrong with either opinion. But if you argue about this, then it's a machlokas lolashem shamayim. Because I said both are legitimate. So therefore, let's come to a peaceful agreement. If they refuse to come to a peaceful agreement, they should gather together as a group. Each one should say his opinion. They should discuss it and have a vote. And you should go by majority rule. And there should not be any machlokas about this. One more question that seems to be a very interesting question was about the dinim of yard site. We always choose an avel to daven, and there has to be some sort of pecking order if there's more than one avel. So he asked the question, would a Kohen or a Levi come before a regular Yisrael? Interesting. That some people thought because the person's a Kohen or a Levi and there's a mitzvah, actually the tshuva was written about a Levi. It seems to me that a Kohen is stronger because of the mitzvah of the Kiddashto. But he, nevertheless, the question was asked and he quotes the Nesivos as saying that, yes, 
the Levi would come first. The Nesivos wrote that in his Siddur. Rabbi Shlomo Eger said, you know, you don't pass him from a Siddur. You write down notes in a Siddur, but a Siddur is not a Psaq Halacha. Therefore, I think that there's no real difference in appointing a Baltfila is who is an Avel, I don't think that's a din of Kavod. He's, he, he's getting up to Davin, not because we're giving him the, the Kavod, he's a Kohen or a Levi. We're giving him the, the Kavod because he went, he's an Avel. So I don't think there's a din of the Kiddashto in that respect. But then he said, perhaps the Kavod would not be for the Avel e- either. Maybe the Kavod would be for the fact that he is saying, Davening, to bring his chus to his father. And his father is a Kohen. So perhaps you should choose one Kohen over the other, one Kohen over a Yisrael, not because of that particular person, but because the covet of the father. Here of Shlomo Eger, and this tshuva is a very short tshuva, not like the other uh, tshuvas that I mentioned, or the other tshuva that I mentioned today, which are rather lengthy. But here he just said, he never heard that there's a din called Vikidashto for a dead Kohen. The din of Kavod after death does apply to a Rav and does apply to your father. I always was wondering about the din of Kavod for your father after death because the basic definition of Kavod is to do personal service for your father, like Machileu, Mashkeu, Machniso, Motzio, to help him get dressed, to give him food, to give him to drink. But I didn't understand completely the concept of kavod of after death. The Gemara says there's kavod after death to mention his name and say Harani Kaparas Mishkavo, etc., etc. But there is kavod of a father after death, and there's a din of kavod the Ramam has in Hilchas Tamotara. But I never heard of such a thing that there's kavod after death of Vikidashto. The Rabbi Shlomo said that's referring to a Kohen. But in general, a Levi, I don't even know that a Levi comes before Yisrael at all. The halacha is about uh, a a Kohen, not about a Levi. In such issues, he says, we should see what the community does. I never saw that that an Avel, we would choose a Levi before anybody else or a Kohen before anybody else. If anything, maybe a Tamit Chacham should come first. But it would be a little complicated because you'd have to discuss who's the bigger time of the Chacham. Therefore, uh, I, I think it should just be ignored and we should just follow our custom that uh, whatever reason you choose one over the other is uh, acceptable, but not because of being a Kohen or a Levi.